I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Maeve Conran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 13th, 2016. Coming up, Gillian Bowser, a research scientist at Colorado State University, will talk about the Global Convention on Biodiversity that's taking place right now in Cancun, Mexico, and its scientific and societal importance. From, from elephants to honeybees, women in science, and intellectual property rights, the Convention on Biological Diversity is a critical platform for addressing our global climate. And CU Boulder ecologist Alan Townsend will discuss why he and many other scientists sent an open letter recently to President-elect Donald Trump, urging him to take action on climate change. Thanks, Maeve. I know it's a scary time for many for progress on climate, but as the letter suggests, there's a ton of opportunity still before us. But we're going to bypass science headlines this morning because of those two very timely feature interviews. Hello again, I'm Susan Moran, and you're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Cancun, Mexico. Sounds enticing right now, doesn't it, in the chill of December? It's not just a place where many are escaping to over the holidays. It's actually where a major international meeting is taking place right now. It's called the Convention on Biological Diversity. Scientists and officials from nearly 200 nations are trying to hammer out national and global strategies for preserving wild plants and animals and their habitats. Charismatic ones for sure, like rhinos and elephants, but also delicate pollinators like honeybees and butterflies and even plankton. Gillian Bowser is a research scientist at Colorado State University. She's been studying biodiversity and particularly how this and other global environmental treaties and conventions can be effective and how they're not. Dr. Bowser joins us in the studio from Colorado State University to talk about some of the issues that affect us in Colorado and beyond, both physical and political. Gillian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. So why don't you start, just give us a sense of what's going on there and why this is important and how it's connected to these other global climate and biodiversity talks. The Convention on Biological Diversity is an opportunity for nations to get together and talk about critical biological resources. And some of the fun ones are small things like pollinators to large things like elephants, wildlife trafficking, intellectual property rights, but how we work best together to preserve biological diversity that crosses national borders. And this is happening over the course of a week or so with all kinds of issues. Two weeks, right. Two weeks. Um, what What in your mind, given the work that you're doing, both on the treaties and women in science and other issues, what are some of the most critical things that are happening that you hope to get out of it? The most critical things for these types of conventions is looking how nations work together. So, for example, on women's issues, what we try and look at is how women's issues get promulgated throughout the treaties. So whether it's access to land so you can actually manage your pollinators or it's access to the intellectual rights that it come from you know, a biological research. Each one of these cases, we want to make sure that gender issues are recognized and are inside the treaty themselves. So we use that language to make sure those treaties are equitable and they have equal access for all people. And this meaning equitable for scientists, for women scientists, or particularly including for women in communities who are affected by the science done? 
That's a great question, Susan. Two of the things that the, the UN treaties and the UN conventions tend to focus on is the role of civil society and the role of what we call major groups, such as the women's group or the youth groups, to actually be part of these treaties. So as the treaties are negotiated, these major groups make sure that those rights and those access and those views are protected throughout, whether it's the next generation, whether it's women, or also even whether it's just scientists. So in each one of those cases, those groups are part of the negotiation of those treaties. And is part of the impetus for this that they have not been historically, and this is kind of a turning point, or this is to further affirm or solidify that kind of participation? It's part of the history of the UN itself in terms of how it looks at civil society and more importantly as we move towards citizen science and the ability for us all to track small things. It's even more important that we participate in these treaties, we being civil society, because how we collect that data and how we protect biological diversity depends on local communities like pollinators or depends on your local backyard. And, and let me bring it right to here, actually, our backyard. I know a lot of people in Colorado and Boulder and Denver have been taking part in different kinds of, whether it's Audubon Society, but different kinds of citizen science, whether it's tracking honeybees or butterflies or all kinds of birds. So there's an element of that, what trying to expand or set more stringent protocols for citizen science? That's correct. So part of what happens with citizen science is that in a big treaty like the Convention on Biological Diversity or also the Paris Treaty is how do we track the change of species that move through climate change, et cetera. And most often we're tracking small stuff, tiny things like butterflies and bees, et cetera. So even in Colorado, we have nine or sorry, seven species of butterflies, mm-hmm. bumblebees and honeybees that were recently listed. So for citizens to be able Red to help listed us. as threatened or endangered? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So how we as citizens can track the occurrence of these, have they changed, has a new invasive shown up, these are the types of things that we can now do with our own cell phones in our back pockets. So it's really important for citizens to be involved in sort of tracking and understanding what are indicators of change and where those indicators of change have global importance, such as honeybees. And I'd be curious, are there indicators, and whether this is coming out of the convention right now, the talks, but that the kind of data that are collected from citizens are actually being incorporated and aren't just sort of goodwill gestures to get more people involved and educated about science, but they're actually incorporated into peer review research and such? I think that's one of the changing parameters. As our cell phones become more and more complicated, we actually collect observations that are located in space and time. And that is different than it used to be. So you can actually get a very good high-definition picture from a simple cell phone that you couldn't get five years ago. So our ability to track species occurrences where a new species has been noted or something like that now has become an important part of that data set. So as we look at shifts globally, we need to have eyes on the ground everywhere to be able to determine how those species shifted are they declining? Are they rare? Is a new species coming in? So for the small insects, this is a new change on why citizen science has become so important. Because to be able to observe those changes, we need lots of eyes on the ground. Lots of eyes to look at little ant? <laughs> I mean, actually kind of tracking or at least looking at the biomass of a particular square meter or something? Well, there are wonderful apps out now. There, there are tons of them you can download on Find your Find an ant? Um, <laughs> like Shazam? There is a what cricket magic? crawl. There is a cricket crawl. Um, oh, that's awesome. There's actually Forest 101, another type of apps. There's a wonderful app that's based out of Colorado, which is called you know, Project Budburst, and others that are doing just that. How can you track on your own phone um, the changes in the environment and how do you enter them into a larger database? And Project NOAA is another one. iNaturalist. Project sh- NOAA is in NOAA. 
as in Noah the National... Ark, correct? Um, oh, as in Noah's Ark. Says, not... these, <laughs> as in Noah the Ark. Um, all of these sit on a cell phone platform. So they allow species like taxonomy through crowdsourcing. So, you know, California Academy of Science and others actually can help you identify these species. And part of the thing for citizens is simply learn how to take a good picture. So we can find out what bumblebees are there. You can upload the pictures. There's a pollinator app out now. Um, there's a bird, tons of bird apps. But all of these give us science in our back pocket. Let's say you download an app. Does the app also connect you directly to a specific research project? It's not just, oh, how cool, I can identify this ant or butterfly. That's correct. So some of the apps actually go directly to a research project. Other apps create larger databases that are then used for research projects. So a good example is looking at the pollinators in Yellowstone. So we could look at what butterflies and what bees and honeybees are occurring in Yellowstone and then connect to the larger data source to see what bees have occurred in that area, which ones have been noted in that area, and which ones seem to be missing. And that helps us sort of inform what do we look for? Are we paying more attention to a particular bumblebee that may have become less sighted or more rare over time? Interesting. Can you give an example of how the citizen participation has actually um, strengthened the quality of research or, or further expanded the kinds of studies that are done, whether it's here in Colorado or elsewhere? So a great example is recently in the Eastern Caribbean, we ran a citizen science workshop um, where we took a community college and students all loaded the app down. And in this case, they used iNaturalist to and look And I take it a lot of students do have smartphones? Where a lot of students, and this is in the yeah. country of Dominica and San, um, St. Lucia. And we discovered an endemic butterfly that had not been you know, sighted in quite some time. So the local park was there when the students found this butterfly and actually were able to document its occurrence. So now we have a documented occurrence of a butterfly that had not been recorded in that area Is for some time. named after that student? <laughs> they were very excited. So hopefully part of this, these types of projects allow us to check for endemic species, rare species. You know, and now the students know how to look for those species, how to take a good picture, so you get a good observation of all these species. And that's where citizens contribute so much to these treaties. Well, it seems like also really encouraging message for teachers and students all around to teachers, get involved, but it can have an effect. Exactly. And women in science. This is how we all get people excited about science. And just one more thing. So from the convention, I know this is just one of many areas, but it's all we have time for today to, to bring up, but do you expect something different to happen now regarding citizen science, or is it a further confirmation that it's really important and it's working? Well, the convention has two major goals that have come up. One is a, a statement on pollinators and pollinator decline worldwide. So I would see that as, a, as a, a message to scientists to say, okay, we now need to spend more time and more information on pollinators. There's huge economic impact if pollinators decline, you know, honeybees, whether it's fruit trees, et cetera, honey. But also that convention states that we need to keep women in mind. So for small-scale farming, kitchen farming, honey production, et cetera, that's all part of pollinator decline. So tying the economics with gender issues, with the science issues, all are part of what the convention looks like and ties very nicely into the Paris Agreement, which looks at the climate change impacts of these changes of species. So we need to think about it in terms of not just the Convention on Biological Diversity, but also the larger climate change agreement on the Paris Agreement itself. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show.
Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That was Gillian Bowser, a research scientist at Colorado State University, talking about the ongoing COP13, so-called COP13 Biodiversity Convention in Cancun, Mexico, and what's at stake for students, teachers, all of us. Blackbirds singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You are only waiting for this moment to arrive You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Maeve Conran. It's no surprise to you that Donald Trump, the presidential candidate, pronounced that climate change is a hoax. Well, as we have seen, President-elect Trump has not changed his tune. In fact, he's cemented it with some recent cabinet nominations, including that of Scott Pruitt as head of the Environmental Protection Agency. That's Oklahoma's attorney general, and he wants to abolish President Obama's clean power plan. Last week, about 800 Earth and planetary scientists, as well as energy experts, sent a letter to Donald Trump beseeching him to take six concrete steps to address climate change and to to help protect America's economy, national security and public health and safety. Among more than 70 Colorado scientists who signed the letter is Alan Townsend. He's an ecologist at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where he's also vice chancellor of research. And he joins us now in the studio. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. Is this a comfortable place to be as a scientist right here at the intersection of science and politics? (laughs) You know, I think traditionally it's somewhat of an uncomfortable one for scientists, but more and more we're realizing that you know, we're, we're citizens like anybody else, and it's important for us to be part of the process. Well, just to let listeners know, Susan Moran and I will both be asking questions, but I'm going to jump in. First of all, Alan, what are those six concrete steps that you did outline in that letter to President-elect Trump? Well, I'll try to boil them down a little bit. Um, I mean, I think what it comes down to is that we felt as a group that it was critical that, you know, the leader of a nation like this um, accept and communicate that acceptance of the reality of the threats of climate change and the science behind it. Um, But at the same time, um, take steps that not only can help protect us from that, but can advance the, um, the interests of this country economically and otherwise that can keep us safe, that can um, solidify our economic advantages. And that, you know, that's one of the things that gets missed in a lot of this that, you know, yes, there's danger. Yeah, there are things we've got to do, but there's some real, real win up. There's some real win win opportunity for us as a nation as well that um, that the policies that at least so far are being advanced out of this new administration are missing. And one of the six is please uphold, adhere to the Paris Climate Accord, which is about one of the first things that Donald Trump says he will abolish, renege on, as as Scott Pruitt has said. I mean, even if they do, what sort of hope do you have, if that's not too facile a term, that it, it won't just rely on the U.S. participation in this international treaty? Well, I'd say a couple things about that. Um, and, and I do have hope. And, and part of the hope is that, you know, for as important as we are as a nation, we're far from the only nation in the world. And there's considerable momentum on this. And, and there's honestly only so much that we could do or a new administration could do to stop that momentum. The other thing I would say is that that stance um, we now see from very clear data does not support the will of the American people. Um, There are data out there now that show that a very strong majority, seven out of 10 registered voters, want this country to participate in Paris. Only 13% do not. So when they advance that policy as the president of the United States, he's actually not representing the will of the people. And that 
concerns me, but it also gives me hope in terms of where the opinions really lie. Any response so far from Donald Trump or anyone in his orbit? Not that I know of. And no surprise? No, I'm not terribly surprised. Um, you know, it, it takes time. And I think many of us who who signed on to this letter and were part of it, you know, realized from the beginning that and in anything like this, you know, I mean, it, even in more normal times under a, an administration, they're always deluged by by requests and information. And you can't necessarily expect an immediate response. And given the stated policies, I don't expect this to be a a magic bullet that turns the tide. Um, a lot of the point here is simply to try to advance the conversation and keep it on the radar. What are your thoughts on the questionnaire that was sent out recently to the Department of Energy employees trying to gauge who's been involved in climate uh, policy? It's been categorized in many different ways. One of the ways it's been categorized is it's some type of witch hunt. It's some type of list accumulation of folks who've been working in climate policy. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, it worries me, too. It's it's. Um to my knowledge, a, an unprecedented thing as part of a transition in an administration to do something like that. Um, you know, I, I would urge all of us, despite the, the clear signs in front of us, some modicum of caution around all of those. We don't know. It's important not to jump to conclusions right away, but, but it is a worrisome signal. You know, the, the countering thing I would say, and as someone who spent some time serving in a, in a major government agency for a while, is that, you know, even if there is poor intent or bad intent in that, um, Agencies like DOE and others are are full of really long-term, really dedicated employees who are very used to riding out the vagaries of different administrations. And there's honestly only so much that a presidential administration can do to turn the tide of the work that they're doing. And Maeve asked about the DOE memo. There was a similar one last week that went out, right, to EPA, Environmental Protection Agency employees. So, I mean, given that, whether it's an actual witch hunt or McCarthyism redux, or not, given you have 800 plus names on this letter, including yours, is there some concern among you that you might have too that, I mean, no surprise you're a scientist working on climate issues, but that you'll actually be singled out and sort of hunted down and it may make um, funding more difficult or your job more difficult in the future. Is there stakes here? Sure, there are stakes. I mean, I I don't think about that very much, right? Um, You know, (laughs) the, the worry I might have about you know, impacts on funding or impacts on other thing just pales to the to the worries that a lot of people have in the world that are much more real concerns. And, you know, it is critical for those of us, I mean, any citizens, honestly, but certainly those of us who are involved in the science to, to not let that stand in our way of standing up and saying what we believe and saying what we know. I mean, there's so many of us in different sectors that work on problems that, that concern us for the public good. And to me, this is our responsibility to, to try to con- communicate that and not worry about those issues. And is it already having, not just the letter and being a signatory to the letter, but post-election, is it shifting in some way your thinking about how you want to approach science, your own research for that matter? Yeah, you know, it really is. Um, And and it's not that it was a complete watershed moment for me on this. I'd been down this path for a while. But (laughs) one of the lessons for me out of this election is that, well, there are several. One, don't assume anything, but that, you know, um, I I think it's important for us to draw a line between how we might see the behavior of the president-elect or the administration and and then making assumptions about what those who voted for this administration are thinking. And, And it's true that a lot of people in this country are feeling pain and feeling hurt and feeling 
division. And, you know, I think it's up to all of us to try to heal some of that. And those of us in the sciences really have an opportunity and I think a responsibility to do better, to chart our own actions, to make our own research choices, to do things that are guided some by that pain to figure out how we can help. I don't think that's something we do well enough. And, and it's something I'm trying to take to heart in my own research choices going forward. And even more specifically, meaning that sometimes uh, like journalists, you know, sort of going for where the grant money is and maybe not paying attention enough to what is the inner calling based on your scientific skills and based on your moral values or something. I wouldn't even put it that way. I mean, I know there's a bit of a thing, you know, some, I mean, it takes money to do research, but, you know, a lot of us are attracted to the sciences for, for pure intellectual interest. It's fun, right? You know, we, we get a charge out of trying to solve a problem, but there are an endless number of problems out there. And what we tend to do often is be more broadly guided about hey, here's a problem that has some, has some social need and benefit. I should work on it. But then our decisions about what piece we might choose to work on are largely made within you know, the bubble of our own colleagues in our own labs, as opposed to say, you know, let's say I want to work on a problem in agriculture in Colorado. What I really ought to be doing is spending serious time talking to those who have their boots on the ground that are part of it, understanding what the problems are that they face, and then shaping my own research choices accordingly. We don't do that very well, but we could do better. And you feel you can't do that based on you've done a lot of research in the Amazon and elsewhere in tropical rainforests and the nitrogen cycle. And sounds like you probably had a lot of contact with communities, but not to this extent. Are you now getting a sense that that's a little too far away or too, too removed, given the yeah, imperative and it, here? I think, what's, I think one of the things that we're learning um, around this, and, and no surprise, right? A lot of the big lessons sometimes are common sense and you just hit yourself in the head. But, <laughs> but you know, it's one thing to, to come and go now and then. But like any of us, you know, building relationships of any kind in life takes real time, takes engagement, it takes trust. And so if you're talking about working on thorny problems with communities, you got to be there. You got to be there day in and day out, and you've got to put in the time to earn their trust, to understand what they're saying, to be able to listen. And when you're working halfway around the world, that's much more difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Just getting back to that uh, intersection of science and politics, do you think that there might be some effect on students now who are really motivated by a love of science, a love of research, when we see how politicized the entire scientific realm has been, particularly around this area of climate change? Yeah, I I know there are those effects. I've seen them already. And and, and that is one of the things I worry about most, um, that, you know, actions like this, um, tones that have been set out of this particular election can be chilling across the board in so many different ways. Uh, realms, and that includes science. And, and, you know, well beyond climate science, you know, our, our country absolutely depends on the excitement, the vigor of new generations coming in and wanting to do science and being free to do it in the way it needs to happen. And so it does worry me um, to have, you know, young people going in worry, can I get a job? Um, am I going to be targeted for what I'm doing? Am I going to not be able to do the job I want to do? And I think that's something we have to pay a lot of attention to, those of us who are in the business. Well, I'm just thinking the renewable energy sector, when you've got prices for wind and solar at or even beyond parity with coal and even natural gas, it seems like an invitation to go into a growing industry and yet so much uncertainty on the federal level in terms of incentives and tax credits that have been existing. Do you think it's that 
uncertainty too that is going to drive people away from wanting to go into these fields? You know, I don't know if that will do it. Um, that That's one that I actually see more as, as hope than worry. Um, you know, it, it may have a short-term effect, but again, that's one where I think there are forces at play that, um, that again, even the, the policies we're seeing seeming to emerge from the, from the president-elect, it's just not going to be able to win that fight. Um, you know, as as market forces, as global economic forces push the costs of renewable down, as, as the clear win-win benefits of those come into play, it's just going to push back harder than what they can do. And certainly that can be stalled some by federal policy, but I don't think it can be stopped. Mm-hmm. And back to the um, open letter to Donald Trump. Do you see it as more symbolic than practical? <laughs> I mean, and that's not a trivial thing either. You know, I, I'm an eternal optimist, even in times like this. And so, you know, I, I'm hopeful that it goes beyond pure symbolism. Uh, you know, sometimes, as I think I alluded to before, it, you have to look at um, what your hope is. You know, do I expect it to reverse his policies? No. Um, may it be one of uh, a number of little things that advance the conversation and continue to ratchet up some pressure to do a little different? Maybe. I hope so. And even if it seems more symbolic on the federal level, I would wonder if scientists, including yourself, see it as something that could potentially help galvanize state politicians and other politicians and policymakers. And if so, is there some approach to that that you or other scientists are taking? Yeah, I would hope so. And, and, and again, as I said before, you know, we have to keep in mind for all of the, you know, stark and, and difficult uh, debate lately around this that you know, most of the country wants this. And, and those who are in politics, for the most part, will understand and pay attention to that. And we just have to keep that message going forward and engage in multiple levels. And honestly, you know, for all of the efforts in the, in the current administration, which in many cases have been laudable, a lot of the real action that we're seeing around climate policy is not at the federal level. It's at the state level. It's in cities. It's in communities. It's in corporations. And that's not going to stop under this administration. And again, may run into some new challenges, but it's going to happen. And there are tons of opportunities for scientists and other citizens to get involved with that and help push it forward. So I still have plenty of optimism around that. Mm -hmm. That was Alan Townsend, an ecologist at CU Boulder and one of some 800 scientists who signed signed and sent a letter to President-elect Donald Trump recently, imploring him to take action on climate change. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Susan Moran, and was engineered by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Charles Mingus and the Beatles. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line. 303-447-9911 is the number. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Maeve Conran. And I'm Susan Moran. Music